Hello and welcome to There's Always Tea, an uplifting podcast that will hopefully have you learning and laughing along with us. But before we start the show, click subscribe or follow now so that you don't miss out any of our upcoming episodes. My name is Keith Hockton. I'm a public historian, author and broadcaster, and we have a great show lined up for you today. It's a holiday show with a bit of a difference. But before you pack your swimsuit and sunscreen, you might want to look a little deeper because even though these islands look great, they are in fact the world's deadliest islands. But everyone loves a companion to go exploring with, and mine today is my trusted co-host, Nikki Jordan, who will help me digest a feast of facts over a cup of tea and a compass and a map. Nikki is an intuitive transformational coach, a certified aromatherapist, a fellow broadcaster, an author, and a mum. Where does she find the time? Hey, Nikki. <laughs> hey, Keith. It always makes me laugh when you say that. Great to see you again. Right. The world's deadliest islands. Mm-hmm. I can't wait, though something tells me this is going to be less about sun, sea and sand and more about grab your survival kit and your wits and hope for the best. <laughs> mm. Yep. Right. It's going to be interesting for sure if it's with you. So before we take to the high seas, what's your tea choice today? Okay. Well, I have some Darjeeling tea and it's meant to be the finest black tea that you can get. Better, apparently, than English breakfast or Earl Grey. Mm, I had heard that, actually. Um, but it does look like you can stand a spoon up in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. The trick, the trick, it's using two tea bags and letting it steep for a few minutes, more like 10. And it's a very hearty tea indeed. Tea should look healthy, not pale and grey with no flavour. And hearty is a good word to use today. I have to say, though, if I drank that much caffeine in one go, I'd be talking till the cows come home. <laughs> really? Caffeine and tea affects you that way? Sadly, it does. Caffeine affects me full stop. I do like strong tea, but better for me and I think everyone else if I find decaf. Right. So what have you got in yours then? Well, I made an immunity blend tea. I've got some grated fresh ginger, some lemon juice, some cinnamon and a dash of raw honey. Just what I need today. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. Shall we get into it? Yes. I'm intrigued about what we're going to discover on this journey around the world. Well, like you, I was born on an island. Like you, I live on an island. And I'm guessing, like you, I love visiting islands. So I thought if I was ever shipwrecked, and it still happens these days, what are the islands that I wouldn't like to get shipwrecked on? Hmm. I think there's something in that. People like us need to be surrounded by water, perhaps. Hmm. I know. I mean, yeah. there's something so calming and soothing for me about the islands. Yeah, same here. You know, when I was writing my dive book, I did a lot of scuba diving, and there were times when we got lost at sea and we would surface and the boat just wasn't there. Wait, hang on. You come up and there was no boat? I mean, that's a bit of an issue, surely. Isn't it all downhill from there? I mean, no boat. OK, let's swim back to shore with all the scuba gear. I mean, what happened? <laughs> um, it happens more often, you would think. And basically, you just have to you, you have to hope that eventually a boat finds you um, before a shark does. I mean, there's de there's no swimming back because you're too far out. And well, rarely, but most, you know, nine times out of 10, you're you're a long, long way out. Um, and if you're out there long enough, you know, if the if you don't find a boat, I guess what you'd eventually do is just dump your scuba gear. Um, you'd have a BCD, which acts as a, a life vest. And yeah. You just hope for the best. Gosh, I mean, you sound so matter of fact and calm about it. I'm sure you're like that 
in the sea as well. I mean, honestly, I don't think I would be that way. I mean, no boat in my mind that would translate as really bad news. I mean, like end of the world news for me. So how did you get out of that situation? Were you rescued? I mean, did you end up having to dump your gear and swim furiously to shore? No, it we you know we surfaced. It was after a um, a deep wreck dive, and um, we just got taken by the current. You know, me and the other guy that I was with, and we were both instructors, so you know we were both very experienced divers. And of course, we hit the surface, and there was no boat in sight. But not only that, you know, we got to the surface, and the sea was just massive. So in the time that we'd been down, the you know a storm had kind of kicked in, and then we were just looking at massive waves. So every time you were in the trough of a wave, you couldn't see anything apart from the waves that were above you. And then when you got lifted to the top of the trough, you know, to the the peak, you, we were looking out for a boat, but there was nothing. You know, we couldn't even see land. It was just mad. So oh we've God. we've got a thing with us that we call it's called a safety sausage. <laughs> it's a funny name for it, but is that the official um, name, <laughs> or is that a Keith Hopton made up name? <laughs> no, no, no. It's called a safety sausage, and um, it's about three feet long. And what you do is you inflate it with your um, your regulator. So while you're on the surface, you kind of pull it out and it's you know uninflated. You inflate it and it shoots up to about three feet and it stands upright and it's bright orange. And what you hope is that when you get to the, the peak of a trough, because you've also got this three foot, you know, safety sausage sticking up, that someone's going to see it, you know, a bright orange thing in the, in the middle of a gray ocean. And that's eventually what happened. But, you know, we were waiting around for about three hours or kind of in that surge for about three hours. So, yeah. And you didn't panic. I mean, what were you chatting about? Life? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously? So, yo, how did you get on last week there? What was your week like? (laughs) What did you do? No, you don't really, because what you're trying to do is you're you're trying to buoy each other up anyway. So you're definitely not talking about your week. And in the back of your mind, you know, you're always thinking um, about what's below you because as a diver, when you're underwater, everything's fine because normally you can see pretty much everything that's around you. But when you're on the surface, that's when you're at most danger because you can't see what's below you. And remember, divers to sharks just look like seals, you know, floundering on the surface. Mm. And sharks attack from below to above. So you're never going to see it. And, you know, this, it's always in your mind, but you try not to put that vibe out there. You know, the vibe is <laughs> you want to be, you know, you want to be thinking positively because you don't want to start panicking because sharks can feel all that kind of stuff. You know, they can feel mm-hmm. the vibrations. They, a bit like dogs, you know, dogs can sense fear. And I think sharks are the same. They can, they can do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, were you worried about a shark attack? Um, you're always, yeah. I mean, just off Sydney, it's, you know, it's, it's big shark territory. That's great white territory. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that um, many people would panic in that situation. I definitely would panic given in that situation. Hey, just on the sharks, mm-hmm. do you remember seeing a video about a woman who was like the shark whisperer? I think there were two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, those, I mean, those videos are amazing to watch and she's amazing. Um, I can't remember her name though. Yeah, there's there's two of them that come to mind, and I just was mesmerised by their videos and the work that they do. But um, and there might be more than this, but the two that come to mind: Christina Zanato, she's mm-hmm. such an interesting woman, and then there's another one called Ocean Ramsey, and Ocean Ramsey is the one who swims with the great whites, but also like forty seven species of sharks. Yeah, I think I've seen uh, her. It's, it's incredible. 
I mean, they're, those, they're incredibly brave because it's fine, you know, understanding a shark, but every creature has a bad day. So <laughs> what do you do when right. you jump in and they've got a, and they've had a bad day? I mean, I think with these ladies, though, what I loved about them was it, it wasn't just them trying to get likes on a on a post or anything. It was like they were they really love sharks and they want to show sharks in a better light, right. you know, given that everything that they've been through and they understand them. Um, and I'm sure, I, well, I'm not sure, but I think they would know if they were in danger, right? I mean, two incredible ladies pioneering a different perception of sharks and doing what they can to change the narrative around them. I think they're amazing role models, aren't they? Yeah. And, and that's the fantastic thing about it. You know, I mean, many years ago, I met Peter Benchley, you know, the author of Jaws, um, and he was at a conference All right. um, and he'd. Yeah, and he, he he turned out to be a massive um, supporter, uh, you know, a proponent of sharks. And after the conference, we we got a chance to speak to him, and he said to me that if he'd known the damage that his book Jaws was going to do to people's perception of sharks and to the shark population as a whole, he would never have written the book. Oh, bless! I mean, yeah, after that movie came out and the whole music and everything, I mean, it was just really bad. Um, and he was an amazing supporter of the protection and preservation of sharks too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was actually he was actually all of the above, even when he wrote the book. But he just didn't realize the damage because he was a he was a scuba diver and a and a, um, um, a spear fisherman. But he, mm -hmm. you know, had he realized the the damage that the book would have done, then it just wouldn't have taken place. And he really didn't. He had no perception of that. And of course, you know, they made it into the the movie that it became. And of course, that also scared the crap out of people. You know that, and gave them a very very wrong perception of sharks. That sharks would actually hunt you down, and you know, not you know go after you, but really kind of hunt you down. And and they just don't. They're just not that that type of animal. Yeah. It's a classic example, isn't it, of, you know, an animal that's got a certain job to do and then they are misunderstood mm -hmm. for doing that job. Yeah. And kudos to those ladies. And I know there are probably many other people out there that are trying to do what they can about raising the profile of sharks. Um, and I think with sharks, we need to protect them, right? They are the sentinels of the sea. They keep order. That's their job is to keep order yeah. in the sea. And they do Absolutely. it really, really well, you know, and they're, they're quite misunderstood, they have their place here and they have a job to do just like we do. Yeah, I completely agree. And at, at the at the current rate, we're killing over 100 million sharks a year, which is, you know, it just can't, it can't continue. And of course, no. when sharks go, which they eventually will, then the, the entire ecosystem changes. You asked about being stranded at sea and something just came to mind. Oh, yeah. Tell me. Tell me more. Okay. So um, I used to live up in Cairns, which is in North Queensland. And there's a, there's a boat there that takes people out to the, the Barrier Reef. You know, it's pretty much for the tourists. But if you want to jump on it, you, you can scuba dive the Barrier Reef while you're out there. So that's what um, me and two of my friends decided to do. So, you know, and so what you do is you go out there, you have an amazing day. They, you know, they picnic you, you scuba dive, you snorkel. And then at the end of the day, they bring you back. Mm, okay. Sounds idyllic. <laughs> so one time, and we later found out that this happened uh, more often than, than was told, we were diving and we surfaced. And as we, as we hit the surface, the boat was leaving. So the ship had basically just forgotten about us. <laughs> no. 
Yeah. So with with 30 miles out to sea and the boat is just sailing into the distance. So we crawled onto the um, onto the pontoon and all we could do was wait. So, you know, the sun set and, you know, we we had uh, wetsuits on. So we, you know, we took those off and basically we just waited. And the the worst thing that happened, though, and you, you think it probably couldn't get any worse than that, you know, because we had to wait the night out. The worst thing, though, was that when the captain got back, and we found this out later on, later on, he actually found that three sets of scuba gear were missing. So that would tell you that three divers are missing. And he he basically went, you know, went to the manifest and and had a look and realized that three people hadn't come back with the boat. Right. So did he send a boat back to get you? Yeah, you'd think that would be the sensible thing to do, right? But he didn't. He actually tipexed us or, or, you know, basically scribbled us out of the manifest, effectively erasing us from the records. So leaving us to die effectively. I mean, I'm closing my mouth right now, but seriously, the whole time you've been telling that story, mouth's been open. Oh my gosh, yeah. seriously, that's criminal. He, he tipexed you out. He erased you. Goodness yeah. me, he can't do that. So so the following day, the weather was really bad and no ships came out. And the day after that, the weather was really bad. No ships came out. So we were basically just lying on the pontoon in 30 miles out to sea. And then on the third oh day, the, the weather cleared. And that's when a ship came back out and, uh, you know, with a, bo- a boat full of tourists and picked us up. Did you ever see that captain again? No. So when we, you know, obviously we made a um, we made a report when we got back. Um, and to cut a long story short, he, you know, it, the criminal charges were actually um, put up put put against the captain, and he was jailed. You know, he lost his captain's license and he was jailed. But it actually, I can imagine being shipwrecked because that's in effect what we were. We were lying on this pontoon with the ship that had left us behind. Oh gosh, I'd be—I really would be terrified, and I'm guessing that we wouldn't want to get shipwrecked on any of these islands because they're the most dangerous in the world, right? <laughs> Absolutely, but of course you don't know that when you get shipwrecked. You just get shipwrecked. You don't get to choose the <laughs> island. It's what, whatever's closest to you. Yeah, good point. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you know, and some are better than others, and some other islands are worse than others um, that you just have to survive on. You know, you're almost better going down with the ship in that case. Mm, I think so. I've always been fascinated by shipwreck stories, though. So Marguerite de la Roque, a French noblewoman, was abandoned with her partner and servant on the Isle of Demons near the Gulf of St. Lawrence in 1542. <laughs> I'm laughing because the name <laughs> completely gives it away. Now, if it was called Island of the Butterflies and Hummingbirds, I know this would have a happy <laughs> ending. Come on, island, Isle of the Demons. I know, right. But keep in mind that Indigenous people often called an island Isle of the Devils or Isle of the Demons if a person had died there. Oh, so okay. they yeah. believed, yeah, they believed that their soul haunted the island. Okay, so that's a good point. So the Gulf of St. Lawrence, that's in Canada. So what happened? Well, Marguerite and the captain, who was also a French nobleman and her uncle, had an argument. And he was so angry that he decided to leave her, her lover, and her servant on the island and just take off. <laughs> I, don't mean to, I don't mean to laugh again, but her servant as well? What did the poor servant do to deserve that? <laughs> And it's not like he can use her, is it? It's like there's no tea to serve, no clothes to wash. Why leave the servant? I mean, good point. But, you know, why would they leave the servant? But why would they leave any of them? Yeah. I mean, that's harsh, even by 1542 standards. Uh, It must have been some argument. So did they survive? 
Well, also keep in mind that they had to fight off bears and wolves. And to cap it all, she was pregnant. And don't tell me it was winter as well. <laughs> I have no idea, actually. But for sure, they would have had to survive <laughs> a winter or two. And Canadian winters are brutal. By all accounts, she should have had to kill wild animals to survive and then try not to die of hypothermia. Yeah, I just Googled your Isle of the Demons and it first appeared on a map in 1508. Hmm, okay. Well, look, it's an amazing story survival and there's a lot more to it. But in the end, her lover and servant died, unfortunately. Okay. And then even sadder is that the baby died too. Right. Um. Yeah. So winter in Canada, as we know, and particularly back then, was a really harsh environment. Yeah, for sure. But in 1544, silver lining, she was rescued by fishermen. I'm I'm still amazed that she actually survived. That, incredible. I know. I mean, not surprisingly, it was at that stage that she decided that Canada just wasn't for her after all. <laughs> no kidding. Right. She headed back to France and lots of books have been written about her and she became quite the celeb when she arrived back home. Yeah, I bet. What an amazing story. What an amazing woman. So that brings mm. me to my first deadly island, which is located 150 kilometers off the coast of San Paulo in Brazil. Um, and the island is called Ilha de la Comida Grande, or more, more commonly known as Snake Island. Snake Island. Snake, Snake. Island. <laughs> I'm already scared. <laughs> You know what? Snakes are not known for their compassion, but I really liked how you said that. It sounds different in Spanish. Snake Island doesn't really have the same effect. Well, look, I've never seen, I've never ever seen snakes as huggable. Uh, I've got friends that actually have them as pets. I just don't get it. Um, and I see them frequently on some of the hikes that I do, um, but I'd never harm one. But I also wouldn't be the guy getting my photo taken with them ever. <laughs> no way. No selfies, please. <laughs> so Snake Island, what's the deal? So this island is deserted, but what earned the island its name is its resident snake population. It's estimated that for every one meter square, there lives at least one snake. Holy moly. But how big is Snake Island? I mean, what are we talking about with these hissing creatures? Well, get this. It's 428,967 square meters. That means Whoa. there's that many snakes on the island. Good Lord. I mean, you wouldn't stand a chance, would you? No. I mean, the island's got extremely rocky terrain. It's a subtropical landscape, you know, which is perfect. Um, it's isolated and it's totally uninhabitable for humans other than, you know, the mammals. Gosh. I mean, this must have had such a profound effect on the snake population. I bet it thrived, right? Without any predators or, or a slot, humans intervening. I mean, what do they eat, though? Is there any other life on the island? Would they dare to go to Snake Island? I don't know. Look, I'm guessing that there's migratory birds uh, that use the island as a resting stop. So I guess mm. if they're quick enough, they could eat those. Um, and maybe when food becomes scarce, probably eat each other. Um, what's interesting, Ooh. though, is that the snakes, uh, known as golden lanceheads, exist nowhere else in the world. And they are totally unique to that island. Ah, oh, the silver lining. <laughs> and don't tell me, <laughs> they are one of the most poisonous reptiles on the planet, right? Yeah, you got it. The golden lancehead is part of the lancehead genus, a type of pit viper. It has the fastest acting venom from the genus and is five times more potent than its nearest relative, the jararaca. Ay caramba! <laughs> it is a powerful bite that eats away, get this, it eats away at the surrounding flesh and causes internal oh. bleeding followed, followed, and the best bit, organ failure. 
Oh, well, there, to top it all off. My goodness, what a horrible way to go. Yuck. Yeah, it's a small snake. I mean, on average, it um, it only grows to about 70 centimetres, but there are reports of some specimens growing to over a metre. Mm, small but deadly. That's exactly the kind of island that I don't want to get shipwrecked on. Yeah, but remember, right, you don't get to choose the island that you get shipped, shipwrecked on. <laughs> yeah, I know, I keep forgetting that, don't I? <laughs> So the Brazilian government banned all trips on the island due to the danger that the snakes pose to human life, but likewise due to the danger humans bring upon the snakes. So the golden lancehead snake is classified as critically endangered uh, and the area is protected in order to preserve this unique population, the only one of its kind on the planet. Despite the government's best efforts, illegal hunters still raid the island to capture these vulnerable snakes and to sell them on the black market. Hmm, at their peril, no doubt. That's a very dangerous illegal game they're playing. Bit of karma in there, maybe? Yeah, one would hope. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Well, number two on our list is Poveglia. You can't live in Venice or as close to Venice or visit Venice without hearing the tall tailors of the island Italians claim is the most haunted in the world. Okay, so what's the deal here? Well, Poveglia is about 15 acres altogether, and it's said to be so evil that you'd be hard-pressed to find an upstanding Italian. (laughs) You always say that when I say evil. Yeah. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find an upstanding Italian willing to set anywhere near it. Okay. Mm -hmm. We need music. Fishermen won't even fish in the area surrounding it for fear of attracting its demons. And it was completely off-limits to visitors for many, many years. I think I read about this place, but it wasn't always evil, was it? I think the the island was actually mentioned in documents dating back to 421 AD, and like Venice, was a flourishing economic centre with a growing population until the 1400s. Yeah, I mean, that's right. During the War of Chioggia, the people of Paveglia were evacuated to Venice. When the war was... (laughs) Why are you laughing? You're laughing at me trying to pronounce (laughs) these words, aren't you? Look at you. It's your Italian. I'm actually very impressed. (laughs) My Italian's a bit rusty. (laughs) But when the war was finally over in 1381, Poveglia Poveglia lay in total devastation. It's a very serious topic and I'm laughing. Um, Poveglia lay in total devastation and only a few dozen inhabitants were able to return home. I just have to interject. If any of our Italian listeners are listening, we we apologise in advance. Yeah, I (laughs) apologise. I have many skills and this is clearly not one of them. Then it was abandoned for centuries, and it wasn't until the plague hit Venice and even killed the doge Giovanni Mocenigo, the head of state, that okay. the idea of a plague island came about. And the Venetians wanted to isolate the infected and curb the spread of the disease. Yeah, but it wasn't the only plague island, was it? I mean, I think um, there was another one, Lazio, uh, Lazaretto Vecchio, that was one. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there were about 500 people that died there a day. Yeah, look, I think you're right there. I mean, it's thought that around 160,000 people died on Poveglia. So being taken to an island, yes, a lot, right? Being taken to an island was a short death sentence. And the people Mm -hmm. often went kicking and screaming because they knew that they would live out their last days in a literal hell on earth. Yeah, I mean, humans back in those days, different times, you know, different, I guess, different times. Mm, Those days? (laughs) Now too sometimes. (laughs) Um, they say that the soil is mostly made up of the ash of the burned victims. Holy crap, that's bad juju. 
Mm, it is. Napoleon used to store weapons there in about 1805, and they say oh, okay. that's where the problem started. So yeah. he destroyed the 12th century church, which you just don't do, do you? And no. that incurred more bad juju, and the church's bell tower was converted into a lighthouse. Yeah, I mean, you know, destroying churches anywhere is never a good idea at any time. Nope. And then a mental hospital was opened in Bavaglia in 1922. And the rest of the events that occurred there, as told by the locals, read more like a Stephen King novel. Great. I get the picture. So the mental patients, instead of getting the help that they needed because they were already in a bad way, get sent to an island where they know housed plague victims. So let me guess. They report seeing ghosts and they were kept up at night with the screams of the dead. <laughs> you nailed it. You've read a lot of Stephen King novels, clearly. But there is more. Okay, okay. Let me have another stab at this. So mm -hmm. the doctor at the mental hospital decided to try and find a cure for insanity and starts performing lobotomies on the patients using hand drills. How's that? Seriously? I mean, at this point, should I be worried about how your mind works? I mean, 10 <laughs> out of 10, really? Well, no way. I just wouldn't have okay. got that, but <laughs> well done, I think. Well, excuse the pun, but that's just nuts. Mm, I don't like that pun. It's also said that a number of patients were taken to the bell tower where they subjected to a, a special kind of torture. But we'll never know for sure what exactly okay. occurred there because the doctor eventually threw himself from the bell tower, claiming just before that the patients had driven him mad. Yeah, but did he did he throw himself from the bell tower or was he thrown from the bell tower? Mm, that's the million dollar question and we will never know. Okay, so let's move away from the haunted island and into what I thought was going to be a more uplifting one until I did the research. How wrong was I? Bikini Atoll is next on my list. Wait, that sounds like the setting of, what's it, SpongeBob SquarePants. Wasn't it something like that? Bikini something? Uh, I've got no SpongeBob. idea what you're talking about. Who yeah, on anyone earth? Anyone with kids. Oh, we'll know about SpongeBob. What is, what's Bob, what, Bob Sponge SquarePants? Who's he when he's at home? SpongeBob SquarePants is a talking yellow sponge. I mean, it's kind of obvious. And his best friend is a starfish. You're but kidding. I just remembered that he lived in Bikini Bottom. Isn't that a great oh. name too? Bikini Bottom. So Bikini Atoll, where is it? Okay, they're located in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean. And between 1946 and 1958, 23 nuclear tests likened, likened to 7,000 times the force of the Hiroshima bomb were carried out. Wow, that's unbelievable. And didn't I hear something about this a while ago? Was it something about the people's health on the island and the massive amounts of radiation? Was it that one, Bikini yeah. Atoll? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the people okay. on the island came down with severe radiation-related illnesses, uh, and they eventually all had to be removed from their homeland, um, a homeland that they'd populated for some 3,000 years, I might add, uh, to other, other islands outside the blast radius. Gosh, I wonder if they knew why or what was happening in terms of, you know, those health dangers to them. Yeah, a, a good question. I don't know. I mean, one would hope they, they understood, but but who knows? I mm -hmm. mean, the greatest exposure yeah. also, which which they wouldn't have known, is that the, uh, the greatest exposure actually comes from eating contaminated locally grown foods like coconuts, um, papayas, limes, uh, I guess breadfruit, and any animals that are raised on the island, such as pigs, Chickens, they may have had ducks, also carried huge risks. 
Sure. And then that would filter through to their meat, right? Which yeah. is consumed by humans and then affects those humans in a more indirect way. I mean, it's terrible when you think about it. Yeah, awful. Um, and it's not just the, the nuclear radiation that makes Bikini Atoll Island dangerous. It's also known for being home to aggressive sharks. Uh, so you'd think twice about before going into the lagoon for a swim. Oh, gosh, this is a deadly one for sure, isn't it? I mean, I really wouldn't want to be shipwrecked there. I don't know anyone who's been shipwrecked, actually. I mean, it seems to be tales of old and invo involves pirates of some kind, isn't it? That's what I think when I think of shipwreck. Yeah, I think, but I think people do still get shipwrecked these days. It's funny, you know, just um, if you're on a ship really? and you're in the middle, yeah, if you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean and what, what's really surprising, you know, I've done it a few times, but you, there's nothing around you. And it's what's amazing is that you can actually sail for days and days and even weeks and you never see another ship. So you can imagine if a ship actually sunk, you know, you're a tiny speck in the ocean. Mm, anyway, that, true. that reminds me of a shark story just before I forget of another incident that I had. Oh, pray tell. Okay. So a buddy of mine was in the special forces. This is when I was living in Sydney. And he used to turn up at my house with all sorts of amazing dive gadgets, you know, computers that weren't for sale, you know, to civilians. He even turned up one day with with a couple of rebreathers. And, you know, so we and we used what we used to do was go and play with this equipment. And then one day he turned up with a like a like an iPod that you could use underwater. Like an underwater Walkman type thing. That's cool. Yeah, it was it was always pretty cool, always pretty cool stuff. So at one stage, we were doing a deep wreck dive, and we had the Walkman-type iPod device to test. So we dived down to 67 meters, which is about 220 feet, so it's quite deep. And when you do those kind of deep dives, you have to do a lot of deco stops on the way up. You can't just ascend. So, And what we usually do, the boat throws a, a line down, and then you tether yourself off to the line, which allows you then to stop at you know different levels as you're going back to the surface. And what we used to do was tether off and then fall asleep. Because, you know, what? that's... Yeah, fall asleep well, underwater. Yeah. So you're because <laughs> really? well, you're on the deco line for such a long time, there's nothing to do, right? So either one or two things happens. And on this particular dive, we, you know, I had a, a walkman to kind of test. So that was what kept me awake. But the other two guys fell asleep. And what they missed were two things was the first of all, the boat captain was chucking down gummy bears. So the gummy bears would actually <laughs> float down. <laughs> float down past us and I was grabbing them and you would eat them while you were down there. And then when that stopped, I had the Walkman to test. So I put it on and guess what he'd put on there? No, it's not, something inappropriate, right? <laughs> he'd put the music to Jaws on it. Oh my gosh. Well, he had a sense of humor, gummy bears and Jaws. Yeah, but the best bit, so that, you know, that kind of freaked me out a little bit anyway, but I, you know, I listened to it for whatever it was, like two minutes or something. And the other two guys were still asleep. And then literally 20 minutes later, we got buzzed by a very, very large great white. But that oh. is another story. Oh, that, tell it. Go on. I want to hear it. No, divers are like fishermen, Nick. We have more stories than you can poke a stick at and everything just gets bigger as the, as the story goes on. Oh, you're leaving us hanging with this. Right, another <laughs> podcast, right? We're doing a podcast about you diving and your scuba stories. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, I've been lost at sea a few times, but never shipwrecked. Uh, but I know two shipwreck stories. Oh, I thought so. All right, then. Do tell. 
Okay, my favorite is about Juana Maria. Have you heard of her? Oh, no, I haven't. Okay, but have you heard of the children's novel Island of the Blue Dolphins? Oh, yeah, I have heard of that. I think I even okay. bought it when my daughter was younger. Cool. Well, that book was based on the Juana Maria real-life story. So Juana Maria, uh, the name given to the famous lone woman of San Nicolas, is actually a Native American who spent nearly two decades stranded on an island off the coast of California. Blimey, that's a long time to get stranded, isn't it? Yeah, she had grown up on San Nicolas, but most of her tribe was slaughtered in the early 1800s by Alaskan otter hunters um, who worked for the Russian-American company. Hmm, nice. So Russians and Americans were friends back then, then? <laughs> yeah, I guess they were. There you go again, then, then. <laughs> it's the Welsh thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, must be. Um, so missionaries evacuated the few remaining survivors in 1835, but Juana Maria was left behind when she ran back to the island to find a missing child. She never found her, and when attempts to rescue her faltered, she was forgotten about and left to survive on San Nicolas in complete isolation. Gosh, how awful for her. And how do you forget a person? It's not like a loaf of bread, is it? Well, yeah. I mean, maybe different times. Uh, and I guess they had different priorities. And who knows? Maybe after the loss of her child and tribe, she didn't want to be rescued. Yeah, I get that. Maybe. Anyway, she spent the next 18 years taking shelter in a cave and fishing with hooks made from seashells. Gosh, that's impressive, isn't it? Bless her. Amazing. Yeah, I'm yeah, I mean, you know, uh, an amazing feat. And she also captured seabirds and, and seals, you know, for clothing and food and fashioned their feathers into skins, uh, feathers and skins into dresses. Um, and I think passed the time weaving baskets and bowls from grasses that surrounded the island. She also swam and made friends with a pot of dolphins and they would visit her every three months. How cool is that? Gosh, she sounds like a right old Snow White. Amazing, <laughs> wasn't she? Or Joan of Arc or something. Blimey. It sounds idyllic, but the isolation, I think, would have been a nightmare for me. I mean, I can't imagine how she did that. But then again, I guess she'd seen what the world is like, um, witnessed her tribe being slaughtered, lost her yeah. child. So yeah. maybe she loved not being part of that world. I completely get that. Um, was she eventually rescued? Yeah, me too. I get it. Uh, yeah, she was, but only after 18 years. 18 years? Goodness, that's yeah. a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a long time. Um, okay, so next on the Deadly Island shopping list is one of the Andaman Islands. No way. I mean, people go there because the islands are stunningly beautiful, don't they? There's Deadly. There's a Deadly Island. <laughs> yes and no. And the no, the no, 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 no is North Sentinel Island, located in the Bay of Bengal, just off India. Mm. Okay, well, tell me. Okay, so this island is home to the Sentinelese, a group of indigenous people unreceptive towards anyone from the outside world for, get it, the last 60,000 years. No way, 60,000 years. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I know. It's 60,000 years. It's a, it's a crazy number. So the island is mm -hmm. so dangerous that even the government of India has made it illegal for its people to go within three miles of it. Blimey, dare I ask why? Yeah, well, it's the Sentinelese. You know, they aggressively attack visitors with deadly spears and arrows. And in fact, two fishermen who wandered onto North Sentinel Island by mistake uh, were killed by archers in 2006. Mm, well, that answers that then. I remember reading about that. And there's no recourse, right? Because they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And I guess the, the Sentinelese don't understand the concept of your home is my home. Uh, they just want to, basically, <laughs> they just want to be left alone. That's nuts, isn't it? So if you get shipwrecked there, you're pretty much dead. You're done. You're toast. 
pretty much, I think. But what you do know mm. is that no one is going to rescue you. Mm-hmm. True, which is another important point. And a horrible one after surviving the shipwreck. You get through all of that and then you just die anyway. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so next on my list is Miyake-jima, which is a volcanic island in the Philippine Sea, southwest of Tokyo, Japan. Okay, I don't know this one. So why is this one so deadly? Well, it's deadly for a different reason. This is one that's more about the island itself not wanting visitors. Ooh, okay. okay. So mm -hmm. there are people who live there, actually, but they're constantly under threat from volcanic emissions. They live on a live volcano? Yeah. The highest elevation on the island, Mount Oyama, is an active volcano that's erupted multiple times through history. A minor eruption reaching 300 meters above the volcano occurred on April the 2nd, 2003. Wow. Okay. And yeah, so so fairly recent, right? And in 2000, they had to evacuate the 2,800 residents when there was a major eruption. Man, I mean, why would you live there? And, and what would you do if you did live there? I don't know. I mean, there must be some redeeming factors, right? The most recent volcanic eruptions lasted for four years, leading to a constant flow of toxic sulfur vapors on the island. <laughs> I mean, the smell alone would drive you into the sea. Yeah, I don't know. I guess they're used to it, I suppose. I don't know. No way. But alarms, I don't know. Alarms go off across the island whenever there's a dangerous increase in the levels of poisonous sulfuric gas in the air. So if you're visiting this island, you'll be required to carry a gas mask at all times. Okay. I just scratched that island off my bucket list. <laughs> Me too. Because of the unpredictability of air quality becoming toxic, Miyakijima, the gas mask island, is a dangerous place to visit. Yeah, I'll say. Okay. Next on my not-to-visit bucket list is Ramri Island in Myanmar. Hey, if you have a bucket list, things that you want to do, is there an anti-bucket list? <laughs> I think it's called the reverse bucket list. <laughs> I guess. I think some of these places are going to be on that bucket list for sure. I'm, yeah, I went sure. to Myanmar years ago. Yeah, I went, um, gosh, I can't remember how many years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And it was incredibly beautiful and one of my most favorite places to visit in the world. Okay. Well, I don't think Ramri Island was on your itinerary. It's home to the largest population of saltwater crocodiles, the largest reptile in the world. Yeah. I mean, it didn't make my list and now I know why. <laughs> and the deadliest crocodile attack in recorded history happened on Ramri Island towards the end of World War II. Oh, OK. Well, what happened? Yep. Over 500 Japanese soldiers who survived a major battle against the British met their doom when they chose to escape through the marshes that surrounded the island where they were eaten in the crocodile infested waters. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine when night came, how terrifying that would have been? And I bet that's when most of them were taken. I read that crocodiles are more active at night. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the British wouldn't go anywhere near the swamps. Uh, they said that the screams that came from the swamps throughout the night were blood curdling and literally mm. went on all night. And keep in mind that some of those crocs weigh in at 2,000 pounds and they're over 20 feet long. Lovely. Hey, have you heard that advice about running in a zigzag if a crocodile comes after you? Yeah, I think that's true, right? Ha, ah, apparently it isn't. And oh. they're surprisingly agile when they think they're getting a meal. So the advice now is that you should always run in a straight line so that you have a far better chance of getting away. I did always wonder about that zigzag thing. I mean, knowing me, I would run right back in a circle towards a crocodile. I mean, that would be me. <laughs> I was... 
I was just thinking what you said about being surprisingly agile when you're about to get a meal. And I was thinking I'm exactly the same thing. (laughs) According to the Guinness Book of Records, this was the greatest disaster suffered by humans from any animal. So Ramry Island is not the typical vacation spot that you're used to seeing. It's an absolute nightmare. Oh, sounds like it. Uh, So talking of crocs, when I wrote the dive book, I had to head to Darwin. And I had to dive Darwin Harbour because there's a lot of sh- um, shipwrecks there um, that were sunk during the, the Japanese invasion or attempted invasion uh, of Darwin during the war. Oh, right. OK. That must have been eerie. Yeah. Uh, well, Darwin reportedly pulls 100 oversized crocs out of the harbour every year. And when I asked wow. the, the dive master that I was going with what that meant, he said that it's crocodiles that are 20 feet and longer. So what they do is they they spot them, they pull them out because they they attack fishing boats, um, fishermen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they basically have to remove them. And I had to dive in it. I can't believe you dived it. I mean, I can believe actually knowing you, I can believe that you dived that. I mean, are you mad? Well, I had to for the book. So I said to the guy when we went out, um, I said, you know, how dangerous is it? And he said, you know, it's not dangerous at all, dangerous at all. And I said, but you pull out over a hundred oversized crocs every year. And he said, look, you may see them when you're down there peripherally. He said, but they don't like the noise of scuba, so they won't bother you. And no one's been taken yet. Yet being the operative word. Hey, do you know what (laughs) reminded me? I'm still here. I know. But when you said that, that I had to do it for the book, that reminded me of um, Justin Schmidt on the insect the insect podcast. Do you remember? And he, and he said, oh, I had to check the stings oh, yeah. because I had to have them all sting me. And that's exactly what came to my mind when you said that. Like, really? <laughs> like, you have to go to those legs yeah. just to get it's the like research? A, I mean, you do, but gosh. Yeah, you do. Because it's, you know, the book was on the best dive sites um, around Australia. So I was traveling all the way around Australia, you know, basically recording the best dive sites. And that is one of the best wreck dive sites um, up in the Northern Territory um, in Australia. So I had to do it. And your book has been very well received, isn't it? I mean, you wrote it several years ago and you're very self-deprecating, but it's a very good dive book. <laughs> I think it's the only one <laughs> about diving That's around Australia. I don't, <laughs> I don't think anyone was crazy enough to do it after that. Uh, but yeah, it came out in 2003 um, and it's been reproduced, I think, three or four times since then. So yeah, it's still... Still alive and kicking. That's brilliant. All right. So next on my list is Saba, the smallest island of the Netherlands, also known as the unspoiled queen of the Caribbean. Okay. Look, I've lived in the Caribbean and I've holidayed in the Caribbean a lot. I've never heard of this island. No. And you probably wouldn't go there for a holiday either. There are no beaches. It's a small island about the size of Manhattan. And all you can do is scuba dive and hike. (laughs) That sounds perfect for me. Aha, I suppose. But visitors often explore its pristine beauty and rich ecosystem. And as I mm-hmm. said, scuba diving and hiking is what they do. But despite like this, it. the small island of, I knew you'd like it, the small island of Sabah is considered one of the most dangerous islands in the world because oh. they have multiple episodes of severe hurricanes. Oh, okay. And these are not just little storms. They are brutal. Uh-huh. So the Caribbean Hurricane Network reported that this island has been hit by the heaviest hurricanes in the entire Caribbean in the past 150 years. In fact, wow. more than any other island on Earth. And yet people still live there. 
I mean, maybe, mm. maybe you know, maybe it's a seasonal thing, right, where you live there in the winter and the fall, which would probably be great because you could scuba dive and hike. Um, and then you either hunker down for a bad summer or you leave. Yeah, I mean, maybe. If you ever want to visit Sabah, only go during the winter because you don't yeah. want to be caught there when the temperatures start to rise, for sure. So basically, if you get shipwrecked, you only want to get shipwrecked in the good season, not the bad season. <laughs> yeah, that would be helpful. If you could just swing that, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, you you said earlier that you had two castaway stories. So what's the other one? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so St. Helena is probably best known um, as the island where Napoleon Bonaparte was banished um, after he was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo, right? Mm-hmm. In 1815. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I remember in, these little things. Yeah. <laughs> in, in 1815. Well, some 300 years before the French emperor arrived, this remote island in the southern Atlantic was home to one of history's most unusual castaways. So we're talking about the 1500s? Yeah. Well, everywhere was remote back in those days, Keith. I mean, even Cardiff was hard to get to. And this island <laughs> is in the middle of nowhere, right? That's true. And they could have put him there and the Welsh could have sang him to death. Oh, that's unfair, isn't it? I mean, Welsh singing is uplifting and invigorating, and some say healing. <laughs> hey, say something for me in Welsh. I have a question for you. <laughs> oh, no, really? <laughs> yeah, just something, anything, like how are you or something like that. Okay, all right, well, something easy. Okay, and you would normally answer Wow, well, first of all, that's an amazing language. I love hearing you speak it. Secondly... Do you spit a lot as you speak it? <laughs> what? That's gross. No, of course I don't. I mean, if I tried to say something, tried to say anything, anything that like what you just said, you'd be covered in phlegm. Oh, gross. Okay, so what I just said was, good morning, how are you today? And the answer was, good, thank you. Do you want to have a go? <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Let me try it. Okay, I'm just going to move and put my raincoat on and umbrella up <laughs> just in case the phlegm <laughs> comes flying my way. All right, let's You'll go. Need so it. let's start with <laughs> let's start with good morning first. Okay, this is this is an easy one, right? Okay, borada. Borada. Yeah, you got to get the R roll. Borada. 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 That's good. That's a great start. Now the next <laughs> bit. Sit radihi hevo. Um, sit radiki hedo. That's brilliant. That's the first time you've spoken Welsh, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And now you can see why. Oh, not at all. I think that was brilliant for your first attempt. I mean, it's oh, not an easy you. language for people. Yeah, it's not easy, right, to to speak Welsh. Um, but that was a really good try. I will have you saying the most famous longest train station in Wales in no time. Actually, I think it must be the longest train station in the world. <laughs> I don't think it's the longest train station in the world, but it is the longest train station name in the world. Was that what you meant? Maybe they yes, just didn't want visitors back then. Anyway, go on, say it. Oh, really? You want me to say it? Yeah, yeah, say it. I want to hear it. I want to say. I want to see if I can say it. Ready? Ready. Okay. Hang on, hang Stand on, hang on. Umbrella up. Umbrella up. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a flow then. This is a flow of a train station. You got to get in the flow, man. Okay, right. Here we go. Llanfair pwll gwingyll go gera chwyn drobwll llantasilio go go go. Okay, let me just shake the umbrella off. <laughs> and I don't give me that raincoat. when I talk. 
<laughs> That's crazy. Does it actually mean something? Yeah, I mean, everything has a meaning, Keith. I mean, first of all, it's 58 characters long. And wow. in English, it means, yeah, it means St. Maria Church in the White Hazel Forest near the Rapid Whirlpool beside St. Tassilio of the Red Cave. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, I know, right? I didn't... It, I guess that's what they decided to do back then. But it's so long that local people call it Tlanfair PG station. <laughs> I'm just going to call it LPG. <laughs> yeah, that works too. All right. So tell me another shipwreck tale. Oh, okay. Well, there's only one other I know. So it's about a guy called Lopez, who was a Portuguese soldier, um, and he turned against his homeland and sided with Muslim natives during a conflict in India. So basically, he was being paid by an Indian Maharaja to fight for him, which was really common mm -hmm. in those days, wasn't it? Um, the Brits and the French did the same, and a lot of them became fabulously wealthy. Remember Diamond Pit? Yeah. Do you know the story of Diamond Pit? Mm, a little, but probably not to the degree you know it. So go on. What's the story? What do you know? Okay. Okay, so Diamond Pit was around about the same time as um, as Lopez, and effectively he managed to procure the the largest diamond in history, um, and that's how he got the nickname Diamond Pit. And he then sold that to one of the European emperors. I'm thinking Brussels, maybe. Anyway, the money that he got from that one diamond allowed him to go back to England, and he bought massive estates in the north and south of England. And his um, his relatives, his grandchildren went on to, because he, he'd created this amazing dynasty, his grandkids went on to be uh, William Pitt the Younger and William Pitt the Elder. So all because of um, trading in India and warring in India back in those days. Wow. Anyway. Okay. I like how they have the simple names though. William Pitt the Younger and William Pitt the Older. <laughs> the Elder. <laughs> well, to distinguish between... Themselves? Yeah, yeah. So William Pitt the Younger was the the youngest prime minister that Britain had ever had, and because he was so young, that was the the name they gave him. But wasn't oh, I mean William it wasn't Pitt his name? Junior? He wasn't Christian, you know, christened William Pitt the Younger. That oh, I thought that's name. what you meant. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, back to Lopez. So, as a traitor, it's not good news for anyone, especially when you're recaptured by your own people. Oh, for sure. So, what happened? I mean, dare I ask? Well, when his fellow, well, former, when his former brothers in arms captured him, they punished him by lopping off his right hand because he was right handed, his ears and his nose. Um, and you keep saying that everything happens for a reason. Haha, <laughs> good one. I believe it does. <laughs> OK, so tell me what happened next. OK, so deformed and disgraced, Lopez stowed away uh, aboard a ship bound for Portugal in 1516. Uh, and when it stopped at the uninhabited Isle of St. Helena, he slipped away and hid in the forest. OK, so even in his state of distress, he didn't give up, right? I mean, that's amazing. No. Yeah. Resilience uh, at its best. Yeah. And Lopez would, you know, Lopez would live on the island in self-imposed exile for the next several years, totally alone, apart from a rooster that he turned into a pet. Oh, another silver lining. Well, that's cool, isn't it? Yeah, totally cool. Um, and though he refused to come out of his hiding to meet visitors, he eventually became something of a legend, uh, you know, among Portuguese mariners um, who would lead, leave offerings of food, um, I guess, clothing, you know, and, and they called him the Hermit mm. of St. Helena uh, whenever they dropped anchor at the island. I knew this had a happy ending. <laughs> well, as his celebrity grew, uh, Lopez was persuaded to travel to Europe, um, where he received a pardon from the King of Portugal um, and absolution from the Pope. 
Not that he needed either, but okay, I like that no. they decided to look after him. I mean, did they offer him something useful, like a house or a prosthetic arm, perhaps? <laughs> now, that would have been really helpful, huh? No, they offered him a place in the monastery. Hmm. Okay, well, I was expecting you to say something different to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I guess he was in a peaceful place, at least. Yeah, but he didn't take up the offer. He chose to return to St. Helena, where he continued to live until his death around 1545. And of course, by that time, Lopez had spent some 30 years on the island, nearly all of it in complete solitude. Wow. I mean, that's just something else, isn't it? So, Keith, the last island on the list is from your homeland. Okay, cool. Consider Great Britain's wildest and least inhabited corner, Grenard Island is located in Grenard Bay, about halfway between Gaelock and Ullapool. I'm sorry okay, if I've said that in the wrong way. <laughs> the small <laughs> no, oval-shaped well. island. Did I do all right with the Scottishness? Yeah, all right. yeah, yeah. The Perfect. small oval-shaped island became dangerous after experiments with anthrax bacterium were carried out on it by the British government. What? So the English mm-hmm. decided that Scotland would be a good place to test anthrax? Bloody hell. They couldn't have picked an island off Cornwall, could they? I tell you, Nick, for 800 years, the English have picked on Scotland and enough is enough. I'm sure that the English didn't mean any harm. Nah, the English always mean harm. They've meant harm for 800 years, Nick. (laughs) Well, it gets worse, so brace yourself. This was also a site for Mm. biological warfare testing during World War II, which led to the deadly pollution of the island. Okay. The island's sheep were infected with anthrax and later died, so the government had to quarantine the island. Even though Grenard Island was decontaminated in the 1980s, it has still been uninhabited and anthrax spores are still present in the soil. Again, you know, the English have subjugated the Scots for over 800 years and enough is enough. Hey, did you know that that Wales used to be called Wellas? No, the Vikings actually called it Wellas when they invaded in like 900 AD. Well, I didn't know that actually, but I knew about the Viking connection and it's spelt that way. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it's uh, like I a guess phonetic. it's spelled Wallace. It's spelt Wallace, isn't it? W-A-L-E-S. Yeah. 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 So maybe that was just the, the phonetic, you know, translation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there you have it. Eight islands that you shouldn't, wouldn't, and definitely don't want to get shipwrecked on or near, or even take a stopover <laughs> on, no matter what. Yeah, and some great survival stories too, which gives me hope, should I ever get shipwrecked mm. in the future. Listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed hearing about the most dangerous islands in the world and some of our stories as much as we enjoyed telling you about them. It was fab. Thank you, Keith. I'm glad I had my immunity tea to boost me through some of the gruesome stories. Yeah, I'm ready for another cup now, as mine went at Bikini Atoll. Okay, well, you put the kettle on. And all that remains is for me to remind everyone to click follow or subscribe to hear our upcoming episodes. And also, if you have any questions or would like to get in touch, then do drop us a line on there's always tea at gmail.com. Have a great day, and we look forward to connecting with you next time on There's Always Tea. Bye for now. Bye.